3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55am. The time is 7 in the morning. You're here with Zoya and Genevieve. Good morning, Genevieve. How are you? I'm good, Zoya. How are you? I'm pretty well. I'm pretty well. This is the first time I'm talking to you where it's just we're on video over Zoom and it's an entirely white background and you're wearing this like oh cream shirt and there's just so much whiteness going on. It's like a painting. It's amazing. Yeah, currently the only safe place from like outside noise is the hallway. So I'm just like crouched <laughs> in the hallway, like <laughs> leaning on the wall. Um, if anyone wants to walk in, it'd be a very suspicious sight, I'm sure. But yeah, it's very... <laughs> very stage like it is it is rather i am um, i feel like there should be some kind of photo series done of uh 3cr presenters um and the different strange locations they've ended up to try and record record their shows i'm sure there are some very very impressive ones it, yeah, yeah. yeah i think there actually is one i can't remember who it is but they're using like an umbrella and then like a doona over the umbrella as like a noise gate, like a noise. <laughs> yes. And then that recording. Is, yes. <laughs> that is genius because I tried doing the doona thing and yeah. I could not breathe. I, I put yeah. it up on a chair and I tried doing some stuff, but it just, I was just like, oh my God, it's getting yeah. warm in here. Yeah. You suffocate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to take a break and then. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately my, my, my cupboard is just, um, full of actually it's not even really that full of clothes where I could sit it's full of old clothes that I want to take to the op shop and have been wanting to take to the op shop since the beginning of the year and at the beginning of the year I was just lazy and yeah. then lockdown hit and op shops didn't open and now there's nowhere to hide to uh, record inside a cupboard because I've heard cupboards are good yeah yeah that's true actually that <laughs> sorry I feel like everyone has a pile of like stuff that they just are waiting to take to the up shop or like the tip or something I've got like a huge pile in my um in the garage at the moment that just like keeps on getting bigger and it's just like oh I just really need to put you somewhere it's gonna everyone's gonna be having a field day when the up shops and the tip open again it's gonna be so exciting Mm. Uh, and and when and when um you know swap swap sell sale like pages can come back up yeah. on facebook or whatever and and yeah. people can give things away it'll be very very exciting i'm looking forward to that i'm sure there's going to be some great you know um lockdown purchases that people made that they really regret or yeah. that they don't need and that they're going <laughs> to give away and oh we're going yeah, to reap the benefits well yeah <laughs> right now i'm on rotation with like four garments of clothing for the last two weeks that like I just can't put on anything else like really oh yeah what is Uh, what is star what is (laughs) what is individuality individuality? (laughs) I don't know like I I'm finding um you know 
being just with myself and not having the influence or, or uh, stimulation of other people's style and clothing around has made me focus so much more on what I wear. And I actually think about it. But then I also do stupid stuff. Like I have this ridiculous thing that I do every week or so where um, a friend will, will uh, give me a, a request for a TV or a book or something character or a theme. And then I have to use my clothes to dress to that theme, but I have to do it in sort of 15 minutes with just things in my, oh my in my cupboard. Love that. And it is very entertaining. What that's, have you, what are some of the characters you've, you've whipped? Oh, in? I've done a, a gender swapped Velma from Scooby-Doo. That was quite oh. fun. Um, just most recently I did the Riddler. Not from the uh, the movie with Jim Carrey, but mm. the cartoon Riddler. So mm. um, a suit and and purple stuff. That was quite fun. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. It's... Yeah. I feel like I've been going on this like purging of just like all of my possessions, <laughs> just like staring. I feel like it's just, you know, staring at that clump of stuff in my room, like being like, I just need to purge <laughs> all of my crap like it's the only oh, I'm loving I'm loving the different ways everyone's uh everyone's dealing with it it's great <laughs> yeah. but anyway um enough about our fashion sense um did we have a good week did we have a good weekend um yeah what was the weekend it was warm <laughs> it was warm it was really I got out into the park Oh, nice. Oh. Yeah, the parks were, like, flooded with people. And now because you can, like, sit with one other person um, and sit in the park and, I don't know, do you think it's, like, so busy? Um, it is amazing. It's wonderful. It feels like I, I, I went out to the park not long ago. So um, I live in the northern suburbs and Northcote Public Golf Course is now open for people to be able to have a walk around. And I went in there uh, with a friend to kick the football and – there were just little families sitting around and kids climbing trees and, and people just sitting with a friend or, and it just looking so it's like Melbourne's finally coming alive and we're getting through this. And I mean, we're, we're recording this on Monday and there are 11 new cases today <laughs> and it's just amazing. Like we're, we're getting there and if yeah. we just keep pushing, we're going to get there and there's something really hopeful about that. And, and the weather's really, really helped with that. So I sincerely hope that when you are listening to this, uh, the weather is also going to be okay. I don't know if it will be. It looks like it's going to rain tomorrow, tomorrow being Tuesday. Um, and that cases continue to drop and that we are staying safe and pushing through and getting to that point where we can eventually hug our loved ones. It'll yeah. be really, really wonderful. Yeah, there's definitely an aura of optimism. I feel like what really hit home for me this weekend was like the playgrounds were open. I feel like seeing all the playgrounds that were like taped up and like the swings like hung um, on the poles and that was very like dystopian <laughs> to me. But like mm. now they're all open, there's kids playing on them. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's exciting. It's nice to hear kids' laughter again. Mm. Yeah. That's a nice thing, isn't it? Yeah. It, 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 I think it, it gives a sense of of joy to everyone and, and we can all get those little chinks of, of joy, which is really lovely. Not that there hasn't been moments of joy throughout this whole thing, obviously, um, for, for people, but, you know, it's nice to collectively as a society start to feel that again. Um, yeah. It's making it feel like this is worth it. 
yeah for sure this is when like the community aspect really you can see it you know mm. like physically see everyone yeah. how much they've craved <laughs> yeah and you can see also who you're doing this for like we're doing this yeah. for for each other and yeah there's something lovely about that yeah. so there's a little philosophical note but um one last thing that I have forgotten to mention and that is probably the single most important thing we need to mention is last week we had um, Anya, one of our uh, old Tuesday Breakfast presenters, on to speak about a fantastic event that is coming up. And this is my reminder that it is coming up this week. So this week, Tuesday Breakfast will be hosting a very, very special um, uh, Zoom panel event called Classroom to Newsroom Racial Gatekeeping in Australian Media. It's a panel session that um, we're putting together, or Anya's organizing, and we're putting together as part of a fellowship that Anya did with Democracy in Colour, which is a social justice organization. The panel session is looking at um, the it's responding to the media diversity australia's report who gets to tell australian stories which made headlines in august because it really showed the lack of diversity that exists across the media in australia and so this event is going to challenge the defense of the status quo and identify how institutional barriers from australian schools and universities all the way to the newsroom work to directly and indirectly exclude um uh, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, non-Indigenous Black and um, POC journalists and presenters. So it's looking at a sort of life course concept and, and view and perspective of, of uh, media diversity and, and why it is that Australia is um, somewhat lacking in that space. So we can announce who the panellists are going to be and it is really really exciting so at six from 6 p.m to 7 30 we are going to be listening to this is very exciting osman faruqi a journalist editor of schwartz media um and you know a columnist at enemy a whole bunch of other stuff he's amazing he's all over twitter fantastic fantastic journalist madeline Heyman reba a gomorrah woman um, award-winning cross-platform journalist and at the moment is the current media advisor to Victoria's first Aboriginal senator, Lydia Thorpe. So again, incredible, incredible. We've got Jim Marlowe, an African-Australian property journalist at Domain with a focus on social justice, renting, climate change and the environment. There's almost no one out there who else out there who's doing what Jim's doing, like taking that social justice look at property journalism and that kind of thing. So absolutely amazing and a regional radio producer, presenter, and educator, co-founder of African Artist Collective and research platform, Still Nomads. She presents on Triple R. She's amazing. She's a total legend. I cannot believe we have those four people in a virtual room who are going to talk to us about something so important. And they're such experts. So that is from 6 to 7.30 this Thursday, the 24th of September. It's on Zoom. You can find details through the link on our Instagram page, or you can look up Classroom to Newsroom on Facebook as an event, and it will also come up. We'll also share the event again on our social media, and it is going to be just mind-blowingly good. Yeah. Cannot wait. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be great. I am super excited to be listening on Sunday. Mm, it's on, on Thursday, you mean? Thursday, oh my God. 
<laughs> Missing <a> Thursday. <laughs> no idea what's going on. <laughs> but that's all right. You gave me a chance to save the date again, Thursday, 24th of September. We'll also be replaying it on our show as well. So for those of you who can't dial in, we'll be replaying it. But if you do dial in live, you'll be able to ask questions because a chunk of that is going to be a question section. Mm-hmm. So that's really exciting. You get to ask these incredible people to provide their insight into something so important. So that's wonderful. But that's this Thursday and that's next week's show. What's on this week, Genevieve? What have you got lined up for us? Yeah, this week um, we've got, so I interviewed um, a friend of mine, actually, Sunny Lennon. Uh, She's a photographer um, based in Melbourne. Um, She's been doing a few creative projects uh, in regards to lockdown. And we had a bit of a chat about, you know, how lockdown fuels creativity and what creatives are doing to get their work out there in lockdown. And it was a really nice chat, um, especially from a personal perspective of a creative and I guess how difficult it's been, um, uh, but also how they're kind of pushing through it and um, some of the work that's coming out there from artists and stuff has just been incredible. Um, mm. So yeah, had a bit of a chat to um, Sunny and I've also, um, so for the last four weeks on the show, we've been playing the series Underfoot. Um, Underfoot is a series about local history in Footscray. It has a very intimate lens and it was produced and uh, uh created by Liz Crash and Jinghua Xian. And I interviewed Liz and Jinghua um, this week about the Underfoot series and about Footscray and what Footscray means to them and uh, Footscray today compared to um, the the history of Footscray, what's changed, what hasn't. Um, it was a really great chat. Uh, they have such a personal uh, ties to Footscray um, and such an interesting take on what's happening to Footscray and also the importance of local history itself and learning local history and also rewriting local history. Um, so yeah, it was a really good chat. And Zoya, you've interviewed someone as well. Who did you speak to? I have. Um, so I spoke with Fran, Fran Berry, who is a commissioning editor at Some Kind Press. Some Kind Press is a brand new publisher in Australia that operates on a really interesting crowdfunding model. The name may be familiar because I interviewed Shuling Chua last week, who is um, a writer who has published a collection of essays through some kind of press. So a little bit of a themed follow-up, I suppose. So she's just talking about the history of the publication, its model, and some of the really interesting themes and authors that, uh, that they're currently working with. Yeah, sounds great. Um, Mm. All right. Well, we should probably get on with the show. Um, Enjoy the rest of your week. So it was so nice talking to you. You too, Genevieve. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.
I am Gemini, super fly, fly guy. I am Gemini, two heads, one eye. I am Gemini, like Pop, Andre, Lauren, and Kanye, boy George, and Nan Frank. I am Gemini, but no, I'm not fake. I am Gryffindor, but don't move like Snake. I am Gemini, people love to call me crazy, but they judging and they hating, and I'm too dumb for explaining. I am Gemini, June 14th, and all the famous rappers got a sign like me. And all the famous rappers got a heart like me But I know that I'm different and they not quite me I'm the horoscope hole, I'm the planet and moon I'm the rise and the sun, fifth degree to the moon I'm the witch of your dreams, I'm the voice in your head Your husband sent me a DM and I just left him on red My planet's Mercury, my element is air I'm such a free spirit that I don't fucking care If I got the blunt, I ain't moving out my chair You could kiss my dearie, yeah, cause it's shaped like a pill Little zodiac, ginger snap, pretty little shorty with the snapback, tarot deck on sack. Like to keep her feet wet, with peace with the freak nick. From home to BX, I clean up like Kleenex. Spinelli, I'm recess, kick balls at the deep end. A public school era is old school forever. The moon and the tides really control the weather. The sun and the moon, yes, it do go together. A spiritual being that rides any weather. Riders on a storm, riders on a storm. Yes, I'm on my own, trying to find up my own. Riders on a storm, riders on a storm. Yes, I'm on my own, trying to find up a home. Intelligent, adaptable, agile, communicative. Informative, creative, and everybody hates it. Imagination, colorful, and I just entertain it. A poet and a dreamer, I'ma seize the world and take it. Of course, there is the bad. I'm really superficial. I ain't called you in three months till I maintain that I miss you. A Gemini with issues, social isolated. I pray that I'ma make it, or at least that I can fake it. And like a Gemini, I'm really prone to changes. I'm really indecisive, and I really fucking hate it. Picking clothes or picking food, it always make me anxious. But thank God I'm androgynous, cause boys, cause what I stay in Riders on a storm, riders on a storm Yes, I'm on my own, trying to find up a home Riders on a storm, riders on a storm Always on my own, trying to find up a home That was... Princess Nokia with a new track that she put out on her new album uh, released this year titled Everything is Beautiful and that song was called Gemini. Good morning you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It's Genevieve and today I'm chatting with Sunny Lennon. Sunny is a photographer. Sunny is a photographer from Melbourne and today we're chatting about her photography and recent projects and also how creatives are adapting to a fast changing world. Thanks for joining us, Sunny. Thanks so much for having me, Genevieve. Uh, Do you want to start off by introducing yourself and how you got into photography? Yeah, of course. Um, So I'm Sunny. I've been getting into the photography world for the past couple of years. I've always loved being creative and been a creative person my whole life, but the kind of official start to my photography journey was like the start of last year. Um, I studied at a uni and really fell in love with the medium. Um, And then, yeah, I studied at RMIT and then I went away for the summer and I came back this year 
just ready and rearing to go and like get my foot in the door of the photography world. Um, I was really interested in in fashion photography and film photography and really wanted to get into like medium format photography um, and kind of work with like assisting for like already set up fashion photographers and kind of networking and all that. But COVID put a bit of a spanner in the works in that plan. And so yeah. I was kind of ready at the start of the year to like hang up my camera for the year and just kind of try again next year. Um, but yeah, I, I just started to see all these incredible initiatives that people in the artistic community were doing and it really inspired me. So I just kept going and kept shooting within the confines of lockdown. And um, yeah, it's been pretty amazing to kind of adapt to such a new way of doing, of creating art. Yeah, definitely. And just yeah. for some uh, visual context for our listeners, do you want to describe your photographic mm. style and maybe some of your favourite subjects or scenes that you like to photograph yeah. and why? Of course. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I really am into film photography. I just love the way it looks. My course that I did at RMIT wasn't super film focused. It was really digital. Um but yeah, I love street photography. I love, I went away in the summer and took a lot of photos in Central America and it was just stunning there, like beautiful colours and um, really strange scenes. Like I love just happening upon something strange and like snapping a photo. Um, and then recently I've gotten into more kind of graphic design, kind of dabbling a little bit using photography in just making kind of other art, but photography isn't the main part of the piece. Uh, so yeah, that's been really interesting as well. Mm. And looking at your photography, I mean, it's stunning. Uh, you get a Thank sense you. of yeah, <laughs> no, it is. Um, you get a sense of vulnerability and intimacy, which I think is so special. Mm. Yeah, is there a specific yeah. response or emotion you try to evoke in your audience, or are you feeling uh, or a feeling mm. you try to capture in your photographs? Well, yeah, I love taking photos of like one person at a time and really working with that one person and um, kind of capturing their essence, I suppose. And so there are a few times overseas where I'd kind of be with someone like the whole day, just snapping pictures of them and what they were doing and getting to know them. Um, and so I think that's what makes a really special photo is when you take something of the person and convey it somehow in the photo that you're taking. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I had a view of a recent project you did actually titled Stay in Your Bubble. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which I thought was such an exquisite array of photos. Uh, do you just want to explain to our listeners how this project came about and what it entails? Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, Stay in Your Bubble came about because I moved into this new share house and I was hanging out with um, my new housemate, Tay, and we were both feeling just so unmotivated and, like, meh during lockdown. And so we were kind of like, we've got to get these creative juices flowing again. Um, and so we were like, how about we just kind of try and take interesting photos within our house and use that as, like, the background. And so... We kind of wanted to set up little scenes in our backyard and um, like little tableaus. And so we like set up a big sheet and got this massive like piece of bubble wrap. And I was like just tying it around her. And I wanted to look at kind of the idea of suffocation and constriction. Um, but then also 
because it's about kind of like staying in your bubble during lockdown and because the word bubble has been thrown around in the news all the time. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to convey kind of how that can be suffocating for a lot of people, but then also it can be kind of like a nice change from regular life, or at least mm. it was at the beginning. <laughs> it's kind of dragging on a little bit now. But, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And definitely this idea of um, like everyone wearing masks as well, mm. kind of just this. And it just makes yeah. it physically like harder to breathe. Yeah. Like when yeah. you're going around doing your business. Yeah. Um, and for, yeah, I personally, I have asthma and so like pretty bad asthma. So I kind of wanted to explore that fear of just not being able to breathe because it's mm. really fucking terrifying. And my heart goes out to all of the people that have had that feeling while having COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's particularly scary. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously with the pandemic, the photographer's field has gotten extensively smaller, as you said. Um, mm. It's been pretty amazing to see so many artists adapt in different ways. Um, how have you exactly been going during lockdown and how has it transformed your photography? Yeah, I've been going pretty well. Um, definitely had moments where I've just been like, kind of, fuck this. I don't like, because the future of the art world is so, it seems so uncertain. So it's hard to be like, my photography really matters and people kind of care <laughs> about looking at pretty pictures. Um, yeah, it's definitely, you've, yeah, I feel like a lot of people have had to really adapt their kind of ideas of what they want to do as a career because it's just, everything is changing so rapidly that you've got to kind of think about whether your career is a viable option anymore. Mm, um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Has any um, kind of lockdown or isolation inspired any photography? Have you been moving more in to your home or out on the bed? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I've been trying to get into a bit of um, still life, mm. which has been really fun, like playing with um, lighting of different flowers and different things around the house. Um, and then I've done, yeah, a few like very socially distant shoots with friends with like masks on and um, stuff like that. I know that a lot of people have been wanting to kind of go into the city and take photos of like the empty streets and the empty monuments and all that kind of stuff because it's interesting yeah. um that hasn't been yeah an option for me so far yeah but yeah it's been interesting like having to so quickly adapt your way of kind of expressing yourself in in art um because yeah especially with photography I really thought that I wasn't going to be going to be able to do any of it this year because it's like such an in-person thing especially the kind of photography I do like I really like to be like close with the people that I'm taking photos of um yeah. and so I'm thinking for maybe after lockdown to do some kind of project about like exploring intimacy in friendships and physical touch in friendships <clears throat> like post lockdown and kind of exploring how it might be a little bit strange at first and how we've all like really missed it and craved it. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, it could be cool. Yeah, it seems that art has been this beautiful thing, uh, like a bridge um, 
for the people feeling really isolated. And I think during the pandemic, we've mm-hmm. also seen quite a stark change in the way that people obviously create and exhibit art, especially moving into a more digital sphere. Do you think this shift mm-hmm. online for creatives is benefiting art or hindering it? Mm, yeah, that's an interesting one. I've definitely like had a lot of friends who have um, really taken this opportunity to kind of explore like digital magazines and digital zines and digital um, like art print shops as well and people selling their art online. So I think um, it's been pretty great to see people like capitalise off this because it's like, Mm. I don't know, it's been awesome to see. Um, But yeah, I suppose it definitely has changed the way we view art in that like Instagram has become so important in the way that you like market your art and have people see it and it's kind of like people rely on Instagram for their sole means of marketing and in like their whole income as an artist as well um and that kind might be like some dangerous territory to get into because like Instagram is a self-interested corporation so if they just like delete their whole platform that just deletes people's livelihoods in like a click of a button so it would be interesting to look at other kind of um alternate platforms that we can view and sell art yeah definitely i think there's also i mean there's such an influx of imagery and i mean anyone can pick up a camera and um be a photographer i guess Mm. and um inject that into instagram so um i mean standing out nowadays or finding a unique kind of flair which i definitely i mean your photography is stunning um it's it's becoming more difficult yeah it's hard to also like find your personal style because you're being constantly bombarded by so much imagery and so many different people's photography that it's really hard to find how like you personally see the world but I think that is the key to really standing out is that like not following any kind of Instagram trend or way of photography. Um, But yeah, it definitely makes you think, uh, like rethink photography as a career when it's just like everyone seems to be a photographer. And so it's like, it'd be a hard field to stand out in for sure. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, And during lockdown, many people have turned to arts and crafts and I guess photography Mm. as a type of meditation or therapy or even just something to do. Um, How has photography helped you reckon with such a strange and unprecedented time? Um, Yeah, it's been interesting with my personal photography over lockdown because I have, as I said, felt pretty unmotivated. and I've like I've talked to a lot of friends who have also been like these things that I was so passionate about, about pre-lockdown. I just like don't touch anymore because I think you go into a bit of like fight or flight mode and those things don't seem quite as important anymore. But then also it's been cool to do different kind of artistic things that where there's like a lot less pressure involved. And so um, photography has been great for that. Because, yeah, I can just, like, snap photos on my daily walk and, um, yeah, it can be pretty therapeutic. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, I know a lot of people that have, like, who previously have been really into photography and because it's a lot harder to do now, they've, like, explored graphic design or making clothes or 
um, yeah, just kind of like adapted to that new way of making art. Yeah, it's been I cool reckon, to see. definitely. I reckon it's been super comforting. I mean, well, obviously we're just stuck in our houses, but I mean, you look at some piece of art that was created in lockdown mm. or a photo or something, and it makes you feel so much more connected um, to other people. hundred oh, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. When I, um, when first lockdown happened, I remember I saw on Instagram these two girls from Castle Maine, they started up this project called Cream Town and it's like a digital art shop. And so I like got, I messaged them and um, asked if I could get involved. And it's where like, it's a yeah, digital art, so, art shop. So um, almost all of the profits go like back to you and to the printers, obviously. Um, but yeah, that's been a really amazing community response to like a terrible situation. Cause they've really like, They've made COVID lockdown their bitch, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, they've just kind of really succeeded in um, finding a new way to sell art. And now they've kind of like, they've got a in-person shop in Castlemaine that's like an art exhibition space and a cafe. And that's all come about from their ingenuity in um, starting a new project because of COVID and lockdown. So... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. People are becoming so much more um, imaginative and I guess resourceful. Um, and yeah. especially for creatives, like, um, it's, I mean, yeah, not much support has been given by government. Um, so it's really nice to see the yes. community helping out. Yeah, it's been amazing to see. I like, because I hadn't really been a part of the art world like pre COVID. And so, kind of coming into it a bit more now it's it's just like such a welcoming amazing community yeah yeah um, and just lastly sunny just because we are running out of time mm. um, how do people access your photography if they wanted to have a look themselves oh yeah of course um so i am yeah selling prints on cream town uh and then on instagram my name just sunny lennon uh and then I'm on a few like online magazines like Frock Up Mag um, that my friend started. And yeah, there'll be there'll be more to come. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, yeah, we'll put that put those links on our website as well. But it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining Thank us. Thank you so much, Genevieve. This has been awesome. <laughs> BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott, divestment and sanctions. BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti on Saturday, August 29 at 7.30pm. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Amy McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr. Randa Abdel-Fatah and Ms. Hibafala. They'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, BDS Australia is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au. BDS Australia is a free CR support. And they say... Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM.
it's Genevieve, and today I've got two special guests, Liz Crash and Jinghua Xian, longtime Footscray residents and the creators of the visual audio tour series Underfoot, that we have had the pleasure of playing on the show for the last four weeks. Jinghua is a freelance writer and editor. Jinghua was also a broadcaster with 3CR's Queering the Air. Liz is a community historian and also an ex-3CR presenter. Uh, today we're talking about the Underfoot series, which consists of four tracks and dives deep into the archives of local history, focusing on queers, migrants and radicals, radicals and artists. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. All right, Jingwa, let's start with you. Just for a bit of context for our listeners, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the series and how it came about being created? Yeah, so basically Liz and I have been friends for a long time, like nearly 20 years now, I think. And um, so I, I know that she's a, you know, dorky historian um, who loves digging around in trove. Um, and I do too. And we often um, talk about history on Twitter. Um, Liz does these mammoth Twitter threads um, on extremely niche interests. <laughs> um, and I've, you know, written a little bit about um about local history and specifically uh, Chinese Australian history uh, as well um, and its intersections with the labor movement. So a few years ago I did um, an essay that uh, in part talked about um, a building that's just on the next block from me, which is the Australian Natives Association building, uh, which is actually an organization for essentially for white nationalists um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, so then kind of in April, well, in March, April, after kind of the first lockdown, uh, Maribyrnong City Council, uh, had some grants open for art that was going to be made, um, I guess in isolation. And I thought it would be really cool to do kind of a history walking tour, um, type project, uh, that was, you know, socially distanced, physically distanced, whatever, um, that, could be that, you know, the community could listen to um, online. Um, and I thought it would be cool to do it with Liz and we put in an application. That's basically what happened. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the project evolved a little from there, I guess, to, to be um, less a, less the virtual version of a walking tour um, and more storytelling. Yeah, cool. And Liz... What was the method you used to uncover some of the histories and forgotten stories of Footscray? Yeah. Um, so basically just heaps and heaps of trolling. It's like a vast amount of really, really obsessive, nerdy going through the archives because I guess what started my interest in this is obviously like both me and Jinghua are really into Footscray, really obsessed with Footscray. Um, and then but if you look into the local histories of most places, what survives is like the pillars of the community, you know, like rich white men, businessmen or politicians usually. But that's not everybody who's lived somewhere. But to find other stories, you often have to go back to the source. Um, so go back to the newspapers, which is kind of, there were so many daily newspapers back in the day. It was kind of the social media of their era. Like there's all these weird little advertisements like, you know, has anybody seen, you know, a very nice knitted sock? Um, yeah literally like I lost my glasses um somewhere on my street <laughs> that would yeah. be an ad 
Yeah. Or like there'll be a column which um, is just all about like gossip about the community, um, which was and Footscray, um, you know, was quite was quite small like when it was established. Um, and there's definitely a sense that everybody knew everybody, you know, and they'll be like, you know, this notorious woman who all our readers will know who disgraces the neighbourhood, or they'll be like, this, you know, diminutive anarchist. We, d- we didn't get to mention the diminutive anarchist, um, actually, in Underfoot. Maybe maybe next time. Um, but that was that's really what it takes is um, just a massive archives. And we would not have been able to do it without the National Library of Australia archives on Trove because they've digitised um, a lot of the early editions of the Footscray um, and other Western suburbs of the papers. So mm. just yeah. a lot of reading and finding some stuff that, you know, wasn't actually as interesting as I, I thought it was, like in the cold light of day and going through it until we found the stuff that was interesting. Yeah, definitely. And obviously both of you are long-time Footscray residents. Um, what is it about Footscray that you love so much and has made you not want to leave? Uh, I, I live right in the middle of Footscray now, like above a restaurant. And I think that's just like the perfect kind of spot for me and I think um that's something I've really missed in other places I've lived uh in in Melbourne um I think like don't have that kind of raucous community feel um in the same way so I think uh living in in central Footscray feels a lot more like uh you know being in a noisy um Asian city where uh, all the aunties and uncles are in each other's business. Um, And I sort of enjoy that (laughs) in a way, Um, even though it can also be like uh, a little suffocating, but um, yeah, that's, that's something I really love about it. And then when it comes to, I guess the stuff we wanted to explore, it's just so rich in, in all sorts of stories. Um, And in, uh, and in, I guess, political history, I suppose, Um, but in a, you know, in a local sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in Footscray and when I got to university, I was desperate to move out to the, in an north and, you know, be closer to the parties and stuff. Um, And then I, I did that briefly and I found that I didn't actually like it. Um, Yeah. And I felt quite detached from, you know, my community. Um, And yeah, partly it was because where I was living, it's not quite as raucous. Um, but, yeah, I think um, Footscray, when I was growing up in the 90s, um, you know, it's become quite trendy now. I talk about this a bit in um, one of the Underfoot tracks, which is uh, track two. But when I was growing up, it was very, uh, it was not a cool place to be from. Like, um, it, was, it was a place that smelled. It was a place, like, with drugs. It was whatever um, in people's eyes. Um, so you develop this kind of like defensive attachment to even the things that are objectively kind of shit. Like, um, <laughs> and what was interesting was the, yeah, was going back to the 1880s and finding out that that had a really long history in Footscray, that um, the town was what I thought was like kind of this fake, like anti-working class rumour about, Footscray smelling bad actually was true for most of most of its history because of various like meat factories that just used to like boil down like rotting sheep and things like that 
Um, and whenever people would try and uh, do something about it, the factory owners would be like, oh, you don't like things that smell. Oh, you're too good for a little, like, um, a few maggots, like, flying around. Oh, you know, get a load of this guy. Thinks he's too good for the, you know, the fly strike to eat his children's eyes. And it was really effective. Um, and I think Footscray's history, yeah, really speaks to that kind of, contradictory and like kind of often self-defeating aspect of um working class cultures and how they get how working class towns get turned against themselves um and that's something um yeah Jing Ho and I ended up exploring a lot like so there's a lot of solidarity um and a lot of things that are amazing in Fitzgerald's history but there's also a lot of stuff that's really depressing and like just huge failures of people to get it together yeah I, I want to focus a little bit about how the history has kind of shaped um, Fusgray today and what you were saying with the smell, especially. Was there anything in particular that you found surprising or shocking about Fusgray when creating Underfoot or any streets or anything that you walk past now and just think differently about? Um, yeah, I think I've said this before, but I would have to say um, I knew in like an abstract way that there used to be a much bigger Chinese Australian population, but I didn't know that that specifically, ah, there used to be many Chinese laundries, like on Barclay Street. There used to be for like at least like 40 years, like a a Chinese market garden on um, where the railway line runs now. Um, And that Chinese market garden is directly opposite the um, white nationalist building that Jinghua was talking about. Um, But only one of those has survived so it's a real both of those histories were instrumental in shaping what's going in the 19th century but only one of them has left a visible mark that's still here today in that in that sense the the chinese market garden is now a railway track's been built over it like there would be no archaeological trace even so that was i think the thing i found the most interesting um yeah what about you Jim? Yeah, I think seeing just how how completely something can can be obliterated from the record. Um, the the one thing that was probably the most shocking to me was that there uh, was what was most likely a fascist terrorist attack um, uh, on Victoria Street in what's now the you know very trendy um, part of Seddon with all the like brunch cafes and um, you know in 1975. Uh, a shop along that strip was bombed and, you know, it resulted in damage uh, like all along those shops, um, the surrounding shopping um, strip as well. So that just like, that was quite startling to me that that could have happened. It wasn't even that long ago. um, And it's just not, uh, it's not something that I think most people know about. There's no kind of memorial to it and, I found that really surprising because I think that's that's the sort of, you know, um, you think that something, I guess, like, you know, I, I know that there are biases to the types of story that are represented, but that's, like, um, such a dramatic, like, something that's, like, literally explosive, the idea that um, an explosive act of violence could just disappear. Um, mm. Yeah, it was, was quite shocking to me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's race. It's so recent. It's, and if you go looking for stuff around that, like it's, it's very difficult to find. I just stumbled across it like in some newspaper archives and I'd never, I'd never heard of it before. 
So it's part of a, a spate of, um, of bombings um, related to, um, to Croatian nationalism, far-right nationalism. Um, but that particular bombing was, despite having all of the features of every other bombing at that time, was not technically categorised as one of them. So the police were like, mm, we're just not sure that this bombing of, like, the usual target in the usual way, like on the usual day, with the features of every other um, fascist attack from this particular group is from them. Um, so because of that, it just got swept away really, really fast. But also, like, that whole era of political violence is, is quite absent from Australian history to begin with. It's like, I didn't, I didn't know about it, like, until I started researching for Underfoot. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I mean this is this is probably, you know, this is a living memory of a lot of people who still live there. So that was quite incredible to me. Like it's not we're not talking about, you know, something that happened during World War 1, like this is the 70s. Um, you know, and yeah, like a few people have written about it and um the other the other bombings which were um of kind of more high profile buildings like uh I think it was maybe the Yugoslav consulate in Sydney. You know, they they've sort of got more coverage but um yeah this this one was just not really um there was a story in the paper at the time but um it it seems to have just fallen from memory if you've just joined us you're listening to 3cr tuesday breakfast 855 am i'm genevieve and i'm speaking to liz crash and jinghua xian and they're talking to us about their new series titled underfoot which dives deep into the archives of the local history at Footscray, especially paying close attention to the history of queers, migrants, radicals, and artists. I mean, yeah, it seems obvious that Footscray has such a dynamic past that a lot of people don't know about. Um, I wanted to just focus on one of the ideas uh, you both talk about in the last track of Underfoot that was Uh, Footscray is the battleground for solidarity. Do you want to just explain what this means to the audience and what was going on at Footscray to describe it as the battleground for solidarity? I think, um, so one of the things that drew us both to, um, I guess, like exploring the contradictions of Footscray history, um, Jinghua was the person who kind of got me interested in this specific organisation was that white nationalist organisation, so the Australian Natives um, Association. Um, And they're called the Australian Natives Association um, because, yeah, they believed that they were kind of like the real natives in a way because they were Australian-born. So they they were white men mostly who weren't born in Britain, but they were born in Australia. Um, But they were also very strongly tied to the Labour movement and not just the Labour Party, which hadn't necessarily been formed when they kicked off, but like the actual Labour movement. So that's something that, you know, is really, it's just so depressing um, that, and it sheds so much light on the problems that still plague the Labour movement today, where um, there's a bigger focus on uh, uh, keeping out like competition in the sense of migrants, particularly Chinese migrants, than there is on any other kind of organising that you might do. But they were of the left. Like they weren't like fake leftists. They were just leftists who were racist. And then as we started picking into it, we found out that there were a bunch of other just real failures like that. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess because we're, we're both interested anyway in um, racism in the left, sexism in the left, homophobia in the left, like, and they were a lot of the stories that sort of emerged um, as we were digging. And, uh, you know, there's obviously, you know, a lot of resonance um, between some of these um, disputes and some of, uh, you know, the ideological positions that you see people take, which is about um, kind of excluding a group of workers rather than um, establishing solidarity with them. Um, so we, we saw that sort of uh, with, with white women workers, with um, Chinese, mostly men, um, you know, and, and various other groups um, from, you know, the 1800s right through to now in different ways. Mm. Yeah, and it's um, it's something that it kind of goes back to that idea often as well of um, being, of, being, of like working class identity means like, you know, an embrace of things that are, are kind of shit. And sometimes that means that, um uh, people have been like very anti-artists like anti-sexual freedom like anti this anti that like in the name of of working class identity which i don't think that's what working class solidarity is about um but it's it's something that plagues us all you know we try and convince ourselves that um you know we actually like the the terrible i don't know rotten meat cruel or whatever yeah, but that's, I think it's, there's a lot of stuff that is, like, interesting and, like, fascinating and, like, inspiring in Melbourne's history and in the history of the left. But it's, and, uh, but it's not what really stood out, unfortunately. Like, it's not what kind of caught what my eye. Um, so there's, there was some cool stuff. I can't think of any of it just now. But there definitely was. Um, but, yeah, it's... Um, I just, like, get quite, like, overwhelmed by how we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Like, with slightly different variations, you know? Like, history doesn't fully, you know, it's not fully circular, but it's just so common. Like, I think one of the things that really um, stood out to me was that the arguments against um, equal pay for women were the same. Um, and came from the same people um, as the arguments against migration, or allowing migration, especially allowing non-white migration. Um, and if you tell that to people today, they absolutely lose their mind that you're suggesting that there's some kind of equivalence there. Um, so that's something that's still very much a live issue. People would still rather, yeah, exclude um, and marginalise some workers than uh, understand the reality that we don't have power if we are divided, like that we only have one form of power, which is that there's more of us than there are bosses. Mm. It's the only thing that we have that we're better at. It's just there being lots and lots and lots of us. Yeah, definitely. And I think it um, this relates to another one of my questions. Uh, obviously, so much of Footscray historically um, you know so much about Footscray historically and obviously living there now, you both know what has changed and what hasn't changed, as you were saying. Uh, what is the most notable change that you've seen in Footscray recently? 
I mean, Footscray is like very much gentrifying, um, as are the surrounding suburbs, maybe even more rapidly, um, you know, like Seddon and Yarraville and um, etc. Um, but I guess, yeah, one of the things we also talked about in, I think it was track three or four, um, is kind of not focusing, people tend to focus on, I guess, the, um, the visible uh, kind of cultural and, and business um, sort of symptoms of gentrification rather than, um, you know, the root in housing policy or, um, or planning or, I guess, like structural uh, issues. And so like often conversations about gentrification are about, you know, uh, the fact that there's like more hipster cafes or the fact that there's, um, I guess, like the look and feel um, of an area, which I mean, which I think, you know, it can be a factor as well. It like definitely changes your experience of it. Um, but yeah, when we're looking at, you know, say, um, the diminishing stock of public housing, like you see kind of how much, uh, that, that this goes back like a lot further. Um, so we were talking about Liz, you were talking about, um, housing policy in the eighties, for example. And that's like, not really, you know, I think often people are talking about like a bunch of, uh, you know, fancy bars opening in the last few years rather than, um, you know, how housing policy in the eighties like led to this moment. Yeah. And it's, it's that confusion of cause and effect and it's, um, and consequences and what the thing is. Gentrification at the end of the day is not a vibe, although that, that is yeah part of it. Gentrification is people being displaced from their communities um, because they can't afford to live there anymore. Like, uh, like that's the heart of it. Um, and that was happening um, well before um, you were able to buy, I don't know, like a dinky little succulent in a pot um, in the, the heart of Footscray. Well, actually, that's not true. You've been able to buy succulents in a pot um, for a very, very long time. They sell a lot of them in the Footscray market. Um, and also succulents aren't even the fashionable plant anymore. I should have picked a better example. <laughs> well before you were able to buy a Monstera in a handmade ceramic pot. Um, and uh, yeah, it's like, it's that thing, right? Because you often, you can't see policy, like, and you can't see everybody's rents unless you're actually really looking into it. But the Futsuki has been becoming more and more inaccessible um, for, yeah, I would say like, yeah, like I would say over 30 years. Um, and yeah, it's interesting because people always um, talk about gentrification. People often talk about gentrification as like, oh, it's it's pushed out all of these like bohemian artists. And I'm like, that that was mid-range gentrification already. Like you're, you're mourning this community that, um, at this, uh, this idea of this authentic community that was already like inauthentic, in, you know, quote unquote. But I guess I understand it because um, you, you can control whether you buy like your plants in like a plastic pot or a hand-churned ceramic one. It's a lot more difficult to control like the levels of public housing stock. Um, but it's a, it's a fake sense of control. And I think gentrification we need to recognize is a big broad social issue. It's about, and it's about like housing being treated as a commodity for the accumulation of wealth rather than a human need. So it's, 
it's something that is not easy to solve and that we can only solve collectively. You know, you don't opt out of it by not moving to Footscray. Um, you have to actively fight it. Um, and you can live in, you can move to Footscray and like be a hipster and like still fight against gentrification, I think. But it's about um, joining in in a collective struggle against it. I think also, like, um, you know, as we were, uh, both as we were producing Underfoot and, um, you know, uh, since releasing it, as we've been promoting it in a lot of uh, local um, kind of, like, community groups, like, you know, um, ones that are just, like, by Swap Cell or whatever, um, as well as, like, history-specific ones, you know, you see a lot of... um, uh, a lot of the discourse about Footscray um, and Footscray's past is kind of mourning, you know, this sense of um, the old Footscray and, and kind of talking about, say, first or second wave gentrifiers or whatever in this way. But I feel like the more we research, the more I felt there wasn't, you know, one old Footscray. And often people use that as shorthand for a particular kind of um white working class life that, um, you know, is not the only past that Footscray's had uh, at any point. So I don't know, I guess I also like want to destabilise a little bit what people mean by the old Footscray. Yeah, it's it's very often, um, yeah, it's a, it can be a very coded racist thing, like a coded, like anti-queer thing, or not coded often at all in the case of homophobia. Um, that that's a whole can of worms um but equally at the same like at the same time there's a huge thirst like in Footscray and among like long-term you know multi-generational like Footscray residents for art and like for culture and like for exploration of that heritage there's uh there's often a sense in some quarters that like that's new to Footscray but Actually, the Footscray Community Arts Centre was started by the trade union movement because they believed that working people had a right to participate in the arts. Um, yeah, by the, the Meat Workers Union, so the same union that represented the workers who were you know, most dealing with all of those rotting meat smells, which were truly, truly disgusting. It's like some of the most... the you know, Victorian-era writers are, are kind of prone to, like flights of gothic fantasy at the best of time but if you show them like an actual river full of blood and like skeletons they just go nuts like i I really recommend like um, well obviously listening to underfoot where we talk about some of those excerpts but also just having a a look into the archives they just really go off with it Mm, yeah Um, the way that you described the like swamp just like you, I could almost like smell it myself just like a putrid and reading from like the old journalists archives as well the way that they even described it so poetically um yeah literally felt like I was just there on the river smelling all those bloody carcassy yeah <laughs> and I hope that you appreciate it um because that is the smell of honest work yeah <laughs> For sure. Um, I just have a couple more questions. I'm conscious of the fact that um, we are running out of time, uh, but obviously the series is incredibly informative, engaging and interesting, especially considering I'm not familiar with the West Side um, uh, historically and geography, the geography of it. It's really um, 
um, amazing to dive into Footscray's local history. Uh, why do you think it's so important to re-examine local history? Um, and I guess, especially in the context of Footscray's local history. I think for us, um, I mean, you know, we wanted Underfoot to be part of uh, these broader conversations on who writes history, who appears in it, what the questions are, you know, um, what the purpose of it is. Um, so definitely, um, you know, we weren't looking to produce something that um, that either, you know, celebrates um you know, kind of settler colonial heroes or replaces them with other heroes really either. Um, but also I think uh, there are real lessons about, about solidarity and about community um, from the past that I think are valuable now, um, you know, and that there's, yeah, there's so much that like really resonates, I think, um, with, the struggles that we have now, as well as stuff that's just bizarre and interesting and funny and um, endearing in its own right. Yeah. And I think people often, uh, there's often this sense now that we live in a, a, a time where geographical location matters, doesn't matter or matters less than it ever has or whatever. Um, I don't think that's true. Um, I think that, people are strongly affected by where they live. And that, that is where most of your relationships form or where your relationships are often strongest is with the people who live close to you. Um, uh, so I think that looking into local history is often like really looking into what is a, what does a real community look like as opposed to like an imagined community um, of, of people who share your beliefs or, you know, who have the same tastes as you. Um, and it's very, it's very messy, um, but I think that's where, that's where our strength comes from, is, is real communities, um, which often, like, kind of terrible and smell bad, but also have, like, amazing things going on with them. For Square at the moment actually smells pretty good. Um, <laughs> sorry. I, I, I should... I just want to make that very clear. Footscray smells fine currently. It's a, it's a historical smell. It's a metaphorical smell now. It does smell fun. <laughs> um, and just lastly, to our listeners, um, uh, just to tell them where they can listen to the series or re-listen to the series and any other info regarding Underfoot. Yeah, you so, can... Um, sorry, you go. go on, Liz. No, you go. You, you sounded like you were going to do it a better spiel. You sounded confident. Uh, cool. Well, uh, they can listen to Underfoot uh, on my website, which is jinghuachen.com slash underfoot. That's J-I-N-G-H-U-A-Q-I-A-N.com slash underfoot. Um, or Liz's website, which is lizcrash, L-I-Z-C-R-A-S-H dot com slash underfoot, um, or just search underfoot Footscray um, and you'll probably find it. Awesome. You can um, either listen to it actually or read it uh, or explore the maps or look at the pictures. Uh, we really have a number of formats available um, depending on what you prefer. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure uh, listening to the series and also talking to both of you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank no, you. No, thank you. It's so great to have this um, played on 3CR. It's really like, it feels like um, our work is like coming home. Yeah. 
it's amazing. I'm just like, yes, it's like I'm back in the studio. Um, except that um, I don't get to hang out with um, Aaron, the Tumble Manifest guy, which is sad. But it's very nice to talk to you, Genevieve. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook. COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. How money changes situation. Miscommunication leads to complication. My emancipation don't put your equation. I was on the humble, you on every station. Someone play young Lauren like she done. But remember not to game the one of the sun. Everything you did has already been done. I know all the tricks from bricks to kingdom. My ting done, major kingdom. Now understand El Boogie, not violent. But different things test me, run to me, gun. Can't take a threat to me, no this way since creation a groupie call you far from temptation now you want ball over separation tarnish my image in the conversation who you gonna scrimmage like you the champion you might win some but you just lost one you might win some but you just lost one you might win some but you just lost one you might win some but you just lost one With a sight to behold, wisdom is better than silver and gold. I was hopeless, now I'm all hopeful. Every man wanna act like he's exempt. Need to get down on his knees and repent. Can't slick talk on the day of judgment. The movement's similar to a serpent. Try to play straight how your whole style been. Consequences, no coincidence. Hypocrites always wanna play in the sand. Always wanna take it to the full out extent. Always wanna make it seem like good intent. Wanna face it when it's time for punishment. I know you don't wanna hear my opinion. Then how many paths and you must choose one? And if you don't change, then the rain soon comes. See, you might win some, but you just lost one. You might win some, but you just lost one. You might win some, but you just lost one. You might win some, but you just lost one. You might win some, but you just lost one. Universal law, 
Lauren Hill uh, with the track Lost Ones. I'm speaking with Fran Berry, who is a commissioning editor at Some Kind Press, which some of you uh, listeners may remember is the publisher that published the is publishing the collection of essays by Shuling Chua, who we were lucky enough to interview last week. Good morning, Fran. How are you? Good morning, Zoya. Lovely to be here. I know. It's, it's great. It's great. Mm. How's your day going? Um, yeah, so um, uh, this is really exciting to be getting the opportunity to talk about Some Kind Press, which um, is, well, uh, yesterday I actually heard someone uh, describe us as a micro-publisher, um, which is a new term I haven't heard before. Um, so I suppose that means tiny, but um, but I think we are potentially doing some big things. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like a so micro-brewery, like micro you know, you make craft. Yeah. It's, it's really artisanal and, and very, very Melbourne. But before we get into that, why don't you just let me know who you are and then we'll have a chat about uh, what some kind yeah, of... Yeah, absolutely. Well, yes. Yeah, so um, I have... Uh, I have been a, um, a publisher for quite a long time, but I worked um, for many years uh, for uh, major mainstream publishers, um, most recently Heidi Grant, uh, where I was involved. Um, I was involved there for about 19 years. So that was from the get-go, in fact, from um, when that was a start-up and that, that's now a sort of medium-sized publisher, I suppose, if not large. Um, and so, yeah, so I was involved with that from from the beginning and then I worked with other publishers in various roles, but um, always in books. Um, and then I thought, 
a couple of years ago, I sort of decided I needed a change, as, as you do from time to time. Um, and I stepped away from that and I um, began to do some work with uh, film companies, um, scouting for books for adaptation. Um, and I did a few other things in a sort of um, like a publishing consultant, I suppose. Um, I'm on the board of the Emerging Writers Festival, um, which does great work um, supporting and in um, enabling, I guess, uh, young or at least emerging writers um, to uh, both perform their work um, and professional development and so on. Um, and then a couple of months ago, um, <laughs> Some Kind Press, um, which is uh, Vaughan Mossop and Simon Davis, uh, who I had worked with um, in mainstream publisher, publishing. Uh, Vaughan is a uh, book designer and Simon is an editor. Um, they were both lovely friends and they had been working freelance uh, and I think back in March when we were first uh, locked down. Uh, they, they've been working on a book with Aaron Turner, who's a chef um, from uh, Igni Restaurant. And as they came to the end of that, um, working on that book, um, things got locked down. The hospitality industry was suddenly in great strife. Um, and so they came up with this idea of um, producing a little book um, that would um, support venues, um, well, in, in particular, that venue that was having to be shut down. Um, and then Vaughan made a little book um, for his local coffee shop, um, John Wear Social Club, and they um, were basically, um, again, the, 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 um, the author or, um, is centred in the project um, and the, um, the proceeds are, are sort of supporting those venues. So, and it's, it's a crowdfunding model, um, which means that um, the, um, the books are, are put up for pre-sale the sales are gathered and at, and at a certain level um, that we know it's viable, uh, we can then go to press and make it happen. So this sounds like a really community-founded, community-focused and community-maintained um, pub, uh, publisher then. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's... It is, a, it is a community. We are building a community. Um, and what makes it really different, different I think, um, particularly to um, a way, you know, a big publisher has to um, work is that we are speaking directly to our community, directly to our readers. Um, we're not, um, you know, we're not working through distributors and so on. We're, we're, we are building a community. We're engaged with them. Um, and so we are, we are learning about them all the time, what their interests are. So the first two, um, so the first series that um, that some kind did was called Takeaway, which was um, little bars and restaurants, um, food writing. Um, did two series of those, but you know then we started to think about what other things I guess 
um, that that community were interested in. Um, so then there's another series called 20 by 4, which has four emerging artists in each book. Um, the proceeds are, are sort of split four ways. Um, so you're interested in food. Are you also interested in art? Um, then, uh, of course, we come to uh, Raw as well, which is um, the series that I'm working on, which is um, uh, new voices in in um, right in narrative in narrative work. Um, so we're just leading, listening to, and leading our um, community community to to see where the sweet spots are, I guess, and. Um, um, and listening to them, and we've had amazing support. Um, it's been really, really encouraging. And I have to say, in this um, in the, in this in this time, the the sort of the winds, if you like, feel so much bigger um, because of that. We basically half the profits go go to the author, which looks very different to um, any other model in in publishing. You talk about uh, 50% of the um, proceeds from the uh, sales go to the authors. What's the usual breakdown in, in publishing? Yeah, well, in a, in a traditional model where you've got, a, you, know, um, a, a, you know, maybe a substantial publishing house, um, the author is looking at more like 10%, um, you know, whereas the, and the other 90 pretty much is, is, is going to the publisher. But the publisher has to, in a big house, has to support, um, you know, marketing departments, sales departments, distribution, which is a huge cost, warehousing, um, you know, rent on fancy offices, whatever it is. Um, but there's a whole machine that they have to support. And I think what that means is the bar has to be set reasonably high. Um, Obviously, we're all, you know, we all want our books to sell and we all want them to be successful, but um, that bar is, is quite high in, um, in mainstream publishing because, you know, they, they, they're not going to do things that maybe only sell, you know, a couple of hundred copies um, because they've got, you know, there's, there's sort of bills to pay. Um, so, that's, so that's how that works, whereas we've kept things very lean, uh, we're going to direct to consumer, um, so we're not we're not um, you know we're not wholesaling and dealing with warehouses. So what I'm hearing is then you basically um, only print as many books as you sell because of the crowdfunding pre-sale model. So like you said, you're not just having books sitting there that in the end just end up in landfill or have to get recycled again. Correct. And impact the yeah. as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so it is all about the, the sort of pre-sale period. I mean, we, 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 as I say, we, we have a, um, a floor, I guess, at which we have to pre-sale X number of copies. Then we know it's going to be viable. Then we just keep the book on pre-sale until we, we finish making it, um, physically making it and pressing um, print. And then off we go. Um, but, you know, recently what we found um, recently is some of the earlier books that we did, uh, um, we kept getting requests, you know, that were sold out, um, that could we bring them back? So just recently um, we've done some reprinting of some earlier books to bring them back. Um, so never say never, I guess. Um, 
we certainly want to keep <coughs> keep them alive if we can. Um, so that just becomes a you know a, just a bit of a logistical a puzzle. So and if, if people want, you say that you kind of work on um, providing what the community are interested in. How do you go about doing that? How do you gauge what what your readers are are interested in reading? Yeah, well, it's um, yeah, no, it well, people are um, they are talking to us. They are um, uh, they are fe feeding back uh, what they think, what they love. Um, you know, the beauty of social media, and this is all really taking place um, online, of course is that um, people post what they love um, and <clears throat> we're, you know, looking at all the sort of stats and facts, I suppose, too, from who's visiting the website and all that sort of thing. Um, as far as raw goes, um, you know, I, I've got a pretty open brief um, to, to, to follow... Um, to follow my nose really um with with i'm not um it's, it's it's obviously early days um but i think the response to the first two books that we've put up um has been really good um and i'm just sort of in the community myself i guess and um li listening um you know there's 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 gold out there. Um, you've just got to you've just got to uncover it. Um, and you know, like like any publisher, um, I read widely. Um, you know, look at what people think, um, what they're writing about, what interests me. So um, you know, to some to some degree, at the moment, it, it it's me following my nose um, for what I'm interested in. Um, that sounds like but, a great you know, job to have. To be able yeah, to <laughs> it is absolutely. You find the writers yeah. and go. I want you. I want to support you. It's that is the dream for a publisher. Yeah, no, it's uh, no, absolutely. Um, that's probably why I've I've um I keep coming back to it. I guess. Um, and I think um I I find meeting people. Everybody, you know, it's a, it sounds like a cliche. Everyone's got a story. Um. Not everyone can tell their story, but um, you can just uncover. I, I love I love memoir style writing, um, and I just think people's stories are so interesting. I love a different point of view, um, come from a different world, um, and in the case of both um, Echoes and Stitched, um, you've got two young women. Um, some of what they're writing about actually speaks to each other um, and that probably probably says something about me and my interests, but they come at it in a completely different way from completely different backgrounds culturally um, and it's really interesting and their approach is mm. and style is completely different. Um, and I find that fascinating, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and they've both sort of been introduced to each other um, through their work. Um, That's which really is really nice That's as well. That sort of community building. So Echoes and Stitch yeah. are the two current collections of essays that are up for pre-sale under Raw, which is the, um, I suppose, uh, collection that you or that you are overseeing at some kind press. If people want to buy either one of those um, publications or if they want to buy anything else from some kind mm. press, how can they find out about it? 
Absolutely. Um, uh, visit somecrimepress.com. Um, it's really, really easy then. Um, you can see all the series and all the books um, that we've got to date, um, which, as I said, is there's a couple of series of takeaway, the food writing ones. There's, um, there's a big book called New Voices on Food, which uh, Lee Tram Lam is editing um, from SBS, uh, which is di particularly diverse food writing, some new voices that we don't hear so much um, in the world of, of food and, um, you know, uh, critical writing on food. Um, and as of yesterday, I think it went up yesterday, um, it's a comic book series, um, which um, The Adventures of Chuck and Her Bubble of Trouble, um, which I think is going to be a six-part series. Um, look, who, who knew we were going to do comic books? But there you go. Um, and um, that's um, uh, Shannon Martinez, um, who has... Um, uh, uh, She's, she's, she's writing the comics. Um, she's amazing. Um, she's Smith & Daughters, um, one of the Smith & Daughters chefs. Um, please take a look at that as well. Um, that's up there. And, yeah, and the two raw, raw books are up and ready to go. Um, well, that sounds so like yeah, really, you all... <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, that sounds like a really, really great collection of books, especially the comic books. But don't get me started on comic books. I adore comic books. Oh, really? Books, but, <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh -huh, okay. <laughs> so it sounds like there's yeah. something there for everyone. Food, comics, narrative. It sounds absolutely amazing. So that's Some Kind Press, S-O-M-E-K-I-N-D-P-R-E-S-S dot com go check it out there are some really great writers and um as fran explained it is all pre-sale based so you know go out go out there order some books so they will be ready for christmas and presents so <laughs> fran berry thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning i really appreciate it oh thank you zoya and we really appreciate your support too wonderful have a great day yeah you too